Hello everyone, welcome to Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Larry Elford, I'm going to be your moderator for the day. We will uh, ask people to find their seats. It's time to get rolling, Annalise says. And uh, first order of business is to ask people if they would kindly turn off their cell phones. Reminder that Shaw TV is here, as is CTV, and they will be recording some of this. Pay for lunch in the baskets, $12 per person, except for our special guest. And the format of the meeting is 25-30 minutes for a presentation from our speaker. And then we have lunch, and followed by a question period in the microphone over there. And to get straight to our speaker, at what cost will renewables and natural gas keep the lights on in Alberta after phasing out coal? We have an energy econom econ economist, David Gray, and a consumer advocate from Edmonton. He's traveled to be with us today. He's worked many years in many public utilities areas. Alberta Energy Utilities Board, Senior Executive of the Alberta Office of the Utilities Consumer Advocate, and he was kind enough to agree to come down here and tell us about much of the confusion on electrical rates, on our energy bills, and on a number of things that uh, will be affecting Albertans. So with that, I'd like to uh, ask you to give a warm welcome to David Gray. Thank you very much for uh, having me. When, uh, when Knut uh, approached me to see if I would come and speak to you, <clears throat> I have to be honest, it was the first I'd heard of your organization, and I think it's fantastic. I wish there were more organizations like this that tried to keep people informed and uh, thinking about public policy issues. <clears throat> public policy issues otherwise tend to get stuck in the echoing marble chambers in Edmonton and never really see the light of day or realism. Uh, so I thought I'd just put my talk today around the core question, which is, are we going to end up like Ontario, with skyrocketing bills and all sorts of issues arising from a move away from coal-fired generating stations to renewables and natural gas? And the short answer is no. And then the longer answer is going to be the topic of my speech. <laughs> So, uh, I, uh, as Larry mentioned, I'm an energy economist. Um, I uh, come to Lethbridge via the University of Calgary, and then the Northwest Territories, and then Calgary again. Uh, and I've lived in Edmonton since 2000. Um, I, I've been a, an electricity wonk since 1989, uh, and I've spent much of my career looking at squiggly lines on charts and trying to decipher how best to provide reliable electricity at a reasonable cost, which ultimately needs to be the aim of any electricity system. Um, the electricity system here is, is unique. We have a lot of made in Alberta solutions that we've applied and we're now looking at how do you address the broader world uh, in terms of electricity so that we can get new generation in at a reasonable price. But first let me just start by talking a bit about the history of electricity in Alberta. Um, I'm going to go from 1912 to the present at 60,000 feet at about 700 miles an hour. So I'm, if there are any questions, uh, 
that require elaboration. We'll certainly get to those uh, after lunch. The unique thing about the Alberta electric system is that we never had a Crown Corporation uh, running our electricity system, which is unique compared with most of our Canadian provincial brethren. Uh, it has always been uh, some mix of municipal and private entities that were regulated on a cost of service basis. So in traditional utility rate making, utilities get to charge for five things. They get to charge for their operating costs, they get to charge for their depreciation of their assets, they get to charge for their taxes, and then their cost of debt for their operation, and then the return on equity for their operation. Now, those of you who are accountants will realize that all of their profits come from that last part, which is the return on equity for their plant and service, which gives utilities a strong incentive to want to invest as much as possible into their system. So you get a lot of gold-plated equipment, you get a lot of um, brand new trucks, and uh, generally their aim is to try and get as much investment as possible rolling through the system so that they make as much money as possible. God bless them. Counterforce to that, you have the Utilities Commission, which says that you can only invest this amount of money, you can only have this much for rates. Um, but we, we have had the situation in Alberta where utilities have done very well under the fully regulated system. Um, and uh, remember the first time when I, I moved to Calgary to join the Energy and Utilities Board in 1998. And at that point in time, Transalta was up in arms because the Utilities Commission had knocked their rate of return back about half a percent, and grandma's, you know, RRSP was going to be defunct, and they're going to have to cut their, their dividends, and everything was a catastrophe over half a percent. And then they changed everything, and so it became an entirely different game. What we changed to in Alberta was what was called deregulation. Now, the ironic part about that was that in deregulating, they added about 20,000 pages of regulation to make the thing work. But the principle was that for some parts of the utility service, you could put those uh, outside of a regulated process and put it to a market. And so that's what happened starting in 1995 and really sort of getting into full fruition in 2000 the electricity generation sector went from being fully regulated where the Utilities Commission would say, you know, you, Mr. Transelta, can build this plant and you, Mr. Atco, can build that plant and everything was planned out for 50 years and everything was uh, run uh, in a fully regulated way. What changed from that is we went to a system where the electricity as a commodity was sold every hour and bought every hour um, in a market. Now, the unique part about the Alberta market was that it's energy only. So the generator only gets paid for generation that's demanded and put into the system by its plant, hour by hour. I'll stop and just let that soak in for a second. 
The long and the short of that system is it's very red in tooth and claw. And so what we saw, particularly when it first started in 2000, was that shortages in the system drive prices up incredibly. So if you'll remember back in 2000, uh, prices went as high as 15 cents a kilowatt hour from 2 cents a kilowatt hour at uh, the stroke of midnight on January 1. And this caused an enormous problem for the government at the time. In fact, they capped rates at 11 cents a kilowatt hour, which were still astonishing to most people. Now, it did turn around after that. Prices dropped down. Um, but we still ended up in Alberta with a problem. And the problem is that we're an island. Electrically, we have very few interconnections with other jurisdictions. Um, there were very few companies that were willing and able to invest in new generation in Alberta just for generation. There were a number of companies that gen um, invested as industrial companies in their own generation, um, and the biggest ones being the co-generation facilities in uh, northern Alberta. But the long and the short of it, it was we ended up with a market that really never functioned the way that it was supposed to. Um, there are other places in the world that have a similar sort of energy-only electricity market. Australia, New Zealand are two good examples. And the theory is that your forward pricing curves will, um, will signal when you need to build new generation and will give you the ability to go to the bank and say, hey, Mr. Banker, I need a billion dollars because I want to build a new plant. The forward pricing curves tell me that I should. Here's the problem. We never really had a fully developed forwards market in electricity in Alberta. So we ended up in a situation where, among other things, certain of the companies were able to create their own shortages and drive the price up. And we saw that through 2012 through 2014. Um, and we ended up where the price of electricity was going up and down, as my old boss used to say, like a toilet seat at a mixed party. Right? We ended up with the most volatile market for anything on the planet with really no financial uh, market around that to take away and absorb that risk. So that was a fundamental concern that I've had with the electricity market here uh, in the beginning, that it was never really set up to succeed because it was set up on this unique basis, unlike any other market in North America pretty much except for Texas. We're really pretty small as these things go, and we left basically five companies in control of everything. So that was where we were at up until very, very lately. The change that was announced uh, just a few months ago is that the new policy for the electricity market is to move to what's called a capacity market. Now, in a capacity market, what happens is that you as a generator get paid for the, uh, just for being there. Now, it sounds kind of crazy, but what you have to understand about electricity systems is that reliability is everything. The cost of not having electricity is extremely expensive. So if you have um, unreliable electricity and you have blackouts, 
what they found when they had the big blackout in northeastern United States back in 2003 was there was five to ten dollars of economic damage for every kilowatt hour that they couldn't produce when they had that blackout. It's a tremendous amount of damage. You think about how everything we do now is predicated on having electricity. You can't get money, you can't get gasoline, you can't do anything if you don't have electricity. So the first and most important thing with the electricity system is that it's reliable. The way that the capacity market framework solves that is it gives the system operator, the Alberta electric system operator, the capacity to go out and uh, do long-term contracts with generators, guarantee them a certain amount of money, uh, enough for them to want to build. And the big difference between the old system and this new system is that those contracts are bankable. So what I'm expecting, and the reason why I think we're not going to go towards what Ontario has done, is that on both the renewable side and on the uh, thermal side of electricity generation, you've got a device that will allow those generating companies to go to the bank, get the money, build the plant. And with that sort of a uh, fungible backing, you will get a lot more competition both from within Canada and internationally to want to come to Alberta and build stuff. We're not going to be left just with five companies anymore that are able to build plants off their balance sheet. So, we'll talk about Ontario in a second, the, the particular problems they've had. but. Let me first talk about what's going to happen in terms of renewables here. Um, so the, the new government has decided that they want to do away with coal-fired power plants as I think the lowest hanging flute, uh, fruit in the carbon tree. That, that is the biggest single opportunity to cut carbon emissions in Alberta, reserving them for oil and gas production. Now, in order to replace those with renewables, you do have the problem that renewables are unreliable. Wind is completely unreliable. My friend Martin Merritt, who used to run the Market Surveillance Administration, um, says uh, it's a big random number generator, right? So wind power blows or doesn't blow, and you really have no control over that. Uh, solar power is reliably unreliable. So you know every day it's probably going to generate, but every night it's not. Right? So again, it, it does give you a problem in terms of having reliable capacity that it on its own won't do it. What you need to do then is to add in thermal generation that can be called on whenever you need it in order to ensure your reliability. And the mix ends up being something like 30% uh, wind 5% solar and 65% thermal. By the time you're all done to get a, a, a bundle of reliable electricity out of a mixed gas and, and renewable system, that's sort of what it looks like. So the question then is, well, when you add those costs on top of each other, does it look really, really bad? And the answer is no. By the time you get a wind at the sort of contract rates that I'm expecting to see, uh, and this is based on results they've got uh, out of Quebec, where they used a very similar system to procure 4,000 megawatts of wind just last year. 
uh, you'll see wind power come in at somewhere around four, four and a half cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, solar power in Alberta will probably come in somewhere around eight. Uh, right now, natural gas is going to come in somewhere around $35 a megawatt hour, three and a half cents a kilowatt hour. And when you blend them all together, you end up at about five. So the Calgary Herald published a report on the weekend that electricity prices are going to double. And the answer is, yeah, they probably will, because right now they're at about two and a half cents. Uh, we did have some things that happened in the last couple of years that have driven the price unsustainably low, uh, so low that people are basically just making their marginal costs back. Nobody's making any money in the electricity market right now. Uh, the folks that invested in biogas and uh, heat recovery plants and other types of alternative generation are really hurting because the electricity price right now is so low. Um, and so I expect that it's going to come back and it's going to level out at about that five cents a kilowatt hour and it's going to stay there. Now that's for the commodity side of it. That's just for the energy production. What we need to also talk about going back to the fully regulated stuff and remember how I said they like to invest in things. Well, they got to invest, God bless their little hearts, in the better part of $15 billion worth of transmission lines. And that's the pig that's working its way down the python in Alberta right now, and the thing that's driving people's rates higher. Uh, when you put all of the costs together, we are not cost competitive. We're, we now have, in many places where you're paying between 10 and 15 cents a kilowatt hour all in, and it's getting so that 50% uh, or more of those charges are wires charges. Now, those charges are still fully regulated. They still go under the Utilities Commission, under the same old system of this is your cost of service, this is how much we're going to expect you to sell, and this is what your rates are going to be. And it's been that process that was usurped by the PC cabinet in 2007 to uh, put through a whole bunch of transmission lines. And it's problematic for us in that the transmission lines that were built were built for export to Nevada. There were, we've developed now two parallel 500 kilovolt DC lines uh, from basically around Edmonton to around Calgary. Um, and the only good purpose you put to one of those lines is to send power a long, long ways. They're the sort of lines they use to run from James Bay in Quebec to New York. They're the kind they use in, um, in Manitoba to run from Churchill Falls to uh, Minnesota. And they're really good for that. The thing that DC lines are good at is long distance because the conductor and the structures that you need are smaller than if you use a comparably sized AC system uh, or alternating current. Uh, and I won't go into the you know, reasons for that, just trust me that they're cheaper per mile than an AC line, but they have these extraordinarily expensive stations on either end of them. So at the moment, we're paying for essentially four deep water ports for electricity for AC-DC converter stations that would be able to ship power thousands of kilometers if we had power to ship and anybody who wanted to buy it. 
I'm going to come back to this when we talk about um, what the future is going to hold and where we can perhaps do better than we're doing now. But just let it be said that the problem right now is more to do with the wire side of the business than it is with the energy side of the business. Even with, you know, even if the worst case happens in the renewable side, we're going to be overwhelmed by the cost of these transmission lines. So, what did Ontario do wrong? Well, let me count the ways. In Ontario, they have what's called a global adjustment charge. When you look at their bills, and I have clients in Ontario, mostly industrial and commercial, um, and you look at their bill, and more than half of it, typically, is made up by what's called a global adjustment charge. Now, in part, that charge is paying for some really, really bad decisions they made on renewables. Uh, they wanted to bring in um, solar power as quickly as they could, so they adopted a, a program that had been used in Germany called a feed-in tariff, which was to guarantee that if you put up a, you know, solar panels, you would get paid between 70 and 80 cents per kilowatt hour for that solar energy. And it was tremendously successful in getting solar panels put all over Ontario, but it's also very, very expensive energy. Now, they then had another thing um, where, similar to, on, or to Alberta, where Cabinet decided that they couldn't trust their experts to do what they wanted, so they just brought in a law to allow the new transmission lines. In Ontario, what they did was to have Cabinet decide, well, we want more wind power. And so they signed this extraordinary uh, sole source contract with a Korean consortium to build wind power. Now that stuff has gone into their global adjustment charge too. But that's not really the biggest driver of it. The biggest driver of the high prices in Ontario, which we'll never have to worry about, are the debts and liabilities associated with their nuclear program. That is still the bulk of the charges that they're paying for on this thing called the global adjustment charge. Now, they've had similar issues with line charges, uh, particularly when you get into northern Ontario and away from, you know, the, the, the horseshoe, um, where when the costs are isolated to those customers, you see tremendous increases in the line charges that they have to pay. And that's why you hear about people in northern Ontario having seven or $800 a month uh, electricity bills. And the other part of that is that they heat their water and they often heat their houses with electricity. Um, and so that's what's driving the, the tumult in Ontario. But even in the greater Toronto area, they are thoroughly uncompetitive uh, for their electricity pricing for their industrial and commercial customers. So I was down in Toronto last spring and sat beside the maintenance manager for the Ferrero Rocher plant you know, the little hazelnut-filled things that we all eat too many of at Christmas time. They were looking at moving because they were paying 12 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, their alternative was to build their own generation plant on their facility. So they really have a special class of catastrophe in Ontario. And the good news is, is it isn't contagious. Yeah. So uh, I was mentioning, um, you know, just as a 
was pigeonholed before, you know, what's the difference here? The difference here is that we've really been able to learn from what other jurisdictions have done as to how to make things better uh, and how to avoid the really costly mistakes that one can make if you jump into the wrong policy. So here we are. We're in a world where I expect power prices are going to go up somewhat, but they're not going to go up catastrophically. Our biggest challenge is how do we make better use of these billion dollars worth of assets that we've got. Uh, and so I'm going to suggest something, and I've suggested this in public before, that what we need to look at is becoming an energy specialist in renewable energy. And the reason I say that is we've got the tremendous potential for wind power here and far greater than we can ever exploit just inside of Alberta. Inside of Alberta, the most wind generation we could ever put in would be 100%, and it's only going to provide about 30% of the energy we need, but there's no point in putting in 110% because then you'd never use it when the wind is blowing. If we instead took those deep water ports that we have for electricity and connected them with British Columbia, we would have access to the world's biggest battery. I started my career in a company that did hydropower. And the beautiful thing about hydroelectric power is that as you store energy, as you allow water to collect behind the dam, you actually get more power. The higher the head behind the dam, the more power you get out of your turbine and the more efficiently it operates. So if we had interconnections with British Columbia that allowed us to transmit large amounts of electricity, we could actually use them as a battery and they would gain because they're able to store water higher behind their dams and get more power out of their existing assets. So to my mind, it would be a win-win. Now, the reason I think that we should be able to do that is summer before, I was in California at a conference in Long Beach on energy programs. The director of the Los Angeles Water and Power Division expected that they were going to have to triple their capacity in the next 20 years because of the electrification of the vehicle fleet. Now, I suspect that that's actually pessimistic. I believe that in California and other places where it's really pretty nice and warm, that the electrification of vehicles is going to happen a lot faster than anybody thinks for the simple reason that they're really, really cheap to operate. They're silent, they don't pollute, and they go like stink. So with that, I'm just going to pause. I think that's sort of where we're at when we're not going to be like Ontario and why there is potential to actually grow our sector inside of Alberta. And with that, thank you. Please enjoy your lunch.